Welcome to Working the Word with Jonathan Vorse. Join us now for service already in progress at Lakewood Church of God. Let's just pray. Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the privilege and the joy that we have to gather together in your name and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the obvious manifestation of your presence in this service today. Thank you for the hearts and the lives that you've already touched. Thank you for those that you have already blessed. Now, Father, we open up our spirits to receive the Word of God. We ask you, Father, to communicate that Word clearly through me to us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your help. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to be talking to you today about no more shame. No more shame. I need you to help me for just a moment here in the very beginning. Now, now you really got to help me with this, okay? I want you to turn to your neighbor and nobody hits anybody. You understand? Nobody's going to hit anybody. But I want you to turn to your neighbor and say these words. You know you're not perfect, don't you? All right, y'all are having too much fun with this. It's just, all right. Now turn to someone else and say, and neither am I. And neither am I. We find ourselves today in John chapter 8. I want to read the first 11 verses here. And I want to talk to us a little bit about what was going on. Before we get there, just let me say this as a way of introduction. From our earliest childhood, most of us have had to deal with shame. We've heard things like, you should be ashamed of yourself or shame on you. What does that really mean? I'm going to put shame on you? Why would a parent say that to a child? Shame on you. Why not blessings on you or healing on you or, or favor on you? But, but we just say shame on you. And so from our earliest childhood, we've heard things like this. And if we don't watch it, what we hear can get in us and become us. And so today, this message is about Jesus bearing our shame. And today, we're going to find out that we don't have to live anymore with shame. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in a tree, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. 
When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now I want to kind of paint this picture just a few moments for just a few moments here, okay? Jesus got up early in the morning and the Bible says here that he went unto the Mount of Olives. He got up at coffee time. That's why we have coffee. I did this more for the 9 o'clock service than the 11 o'clock service, but the coffee cup is there nonetheless. Jesus went at coffee time. He went early in the morning to the Mount of Olives probably to talk to his father. And then he made his way down to the temple. And when he was down in the temple, the Bible said he was there teaching. He came to the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them. So Jesus went to pray, then he went to church. Now, many times I think this whole story, and it's not just a story, I would like to call it an experience, this whole true life experience that Jesus had with this woman that was caught in adultery, I think many times we look at it and we get it wrong because what we're not understanding is they brought this woman to Jesus when he was teaching in the church house. It would be like somebody going and grabbing a woman that was taken in adultery. The Bible said they took her. So it would be like a woman taking, them taking this woman, grabbing her, the scribes and the Pharisees, bringing her into church this morning, right now while I'm teaching, dragging her up the aisle and throwing her down here and saying, okay, preacher, what do you say about this? And all of you would be seeing it. All of you would be hearing it. All of you would be spectators to it. The objective, what they were trying to achieve was they were trying to make a public example of her and put shame on her. That's what they were trying to do. Now the Bible said when this uh, began to happen, the Bible said that the scribes and the Pharisees, now understand that the scribes were the writers of the law and the Pharisees were the enforcers of the law and the writers and the enforcers of the law They took this woman and they put shame on her in public and they tried to entrap Jesus at the same time. So they take her and they throw her down in front of Jesus at the temple. There was probably, there was an outer area there. And the Bible said that when they accused her that Jesus looked at him and he knelt down and he began to write on the ground. Now what did he write? Listen, nobody knows. I don't care who tells you they know. Well, this is what he wrote. This is no, Nobody really knows. Here's what I want us to understand. That what Jesus was doing was communicating to the writers of the law and the enforcers of the law that God is the ultimate legislator. Now, how do you know that, Pastor? Because the Bible teaches us in John chapter chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, that Jesus wrote on the ground and then he said to them one phrase, he that's without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And the Bible said they continued to ask him, so they were trying to entrap Jesus. They were trying to create chaos. They were trying to create confusion. And so they were doing this. And the Bible said Jesus just simply stoops down and started writing on the ground again. 
When I say that God is the ultimate legislator, when he was writing on the ground with his finger, I want to call that the finger of God. Next slide there, if we would, please. The finger of God. Because the Bible teaches us that with the finger of God, the Mosaic law was written... No, back, back, back to the slide before that. With the finger of God, the Mosaic law was written on tablets of stone. So they were presenting this woman to Jesus, backed up with Mosaic law, and they were saying, Moses' law says we stone her. What say you? You call yourself a teacher? You call yourself the son of God? You've been going around doing all of these miracles, healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing the leper and causing the blind to see and the lame to walk. And all of this, you've been telling people that their sins are forgiven. But here's what Moses' law said. Could it be that the same finger that wrote on tablets of stone the law that they were trying to condemn her by wrote in the sand about grace that which would set her free. Could it be that Jesus was saying, listen, you are standing at the beginning of a brand new season. You're getting ready to enter into a new dimension. You're getting ready to experience something you've never experienced before and that's God's mercy and that's God's grace. It was time for grace to be established in the earth. It was time for for Jesus to become the lamb that would be slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. That means I satisfied it. I filled it up. The law is still around. It's just satisfied. It's just satisfied. So then we go on in Ephesians chapter 2 verses, well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, 3. Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, look at this wording, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, referring to the old Mosaic law, but in fleshy tables of the heart. What God was saying, listen to me, church, is if you let me, I'll write my love on your heart. I'll write grace on your heart. I'll write mercy on your heart. I'll write forgiveness on your heart. I'll put something, I'll imprint something with the finger of God on your heart that no enemy, no devil, nobody else will ever be able to take away. If you'll let me, I'll put my love on you. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 17 says this, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, and that word Gentiles there just simply means without God, who are called uncircumcision, but by that which is called the circumcision. So that's the Jews calling people that are not Jews, the uncircumcision, in the flesh. Now look at this, made by hands. In the flesh, made by hands that at that time, somebody shout that time. At that time, ye were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Now, if that's what happened at that time, then what Paul was trying to clarify to the church at Ephesus is that how you were is not how you are. 
Because that's how you were. Now look at this. So if at that time you were without Christ, and that means now you're with Christ, and with Christ you are no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you are no longer strangers from the covenants of promise, you have hope, which is the blueprint of the soul, and you have God. Verse 13 clarifies it. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now we go on. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Listen very closely, church. You know I'm a teacher. Listen very closely. Sin is the great separator between mankind and God. That's what it is. The theological definition of sin is the willful transgression against the law of God. And so when we willfully transgress against God's law, then we sin and that puts a barrier between us and God. The Bible says here in Ephesians that through Christ He hath made us one with God. So what happens is the blood of Jesus, we're drawn nigh by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus is applied to that sin. That blood removes that sin as far as the east is from the west and the Bible said God remembers it against us no more. When the barrier is removed, the work of Jesus as the mediator is to pull humanity and God back together and making us one. That's where we get the word atonement. Atonement. Because we are at one with God. Now how did that happen? Jesus said here, or they were talking here, it's because of Jesus, because the Bible said that He broke down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity. Even the law of commandments, listen, contained in ordinances. So Jesus abolished in His flesh salvation by works. Salvation by works is by the law. The law says you have to do this. You have to bring a lamb. You have to bring a turtle dove. You have to do this one time. It covers your sin. And it really just covered it. It didn't take it away. It just covered it. And then the next year you had to come and do it again. And the next year and one time the high priest would have one time a year would have to take a spotless lamb and slay it there on the brazen altar. In the Old Testament he would have to slay it one time uh, once a year to cover the sins of Israel for that entire year. That entire year. Well, the Bible said that He abolished in His flesh the enemy or the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that law of commandments contained in ordinances was what was happening that was creating the barrier between man and God because of man's sin. And the Bible said here, we go on here, and the Bible said to make in Himself of twain or two one new man so making peace. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what culture you are. I don't care how much money you have or if you don't have any money at all. The objective of God, what God is trying to do, the goal of God is to reach down into this earth and reestablish humanity to the place that God designed him for from the very beginning and that's to reestablish fellowship with God. The purpose of Jesus 
coming to this earth was to remove the barrier between humanity and our Heavenly Father. And He did that on Calvary. Now, let's go on. The Bible said that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. Jesus was riding on the ground, the finger of God legislating, let's just say, grace. Legislating this new day. Legislating that He was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. That would enter in one time into the holy place to obtain eternal redemption for you and I. He is and was and forever shall be the one that eradicates sin and pulls it out of the equation so we can walk as one with God. This is something that the scribes couldn't understand. It's something that the Pharisees could not understand. The writers of the law said, but listen, every jot and every tittle, I've studied this all of my life, and here's what the the law says. The law says, stone her, and I can see a Pharisee picking up a rock. Because the scribes were the writers and the Pharisees were the enforcers. And so I can see a Pharisee picking up a rock and Jesus probably looked at that Pharisee and said, those of you that are without sin, let him first cast the first stone at her. And the Bible said that they were silent. And as we go along there, the Bible said that they became convicted in their own consciousness. Can I say something here without making anybody too angry? I'm going to say it. You know that, right? When are we going to quit condemning the lost and start loving them back to Christ? The church is the only army in the world that kills its own wounded. You know, the Bible said, If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the very person that you're finding fault with and criticizing, that might be you next time. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen next week, next month, next year. You might need God's grace. You might need someone reaching out to you and loving you. The enemy, that nasty, venomous, pharisaical spirit will condemn you and put guilt on you and try to shame you out of living for Christ. It'll tell you you've been to the altar so many times people are going to think this is just a big old joke. And all the time Jesus is saying, but I went to Calvary for you and I shed my blood for you and I died for you. So come on anytime you need to. Even though you're a prodigal, you can still come home to me. Jesus continued through silence. He continued communicating. He communicated through silence. Uh, He spoke Just that one phrase in John chapter 8 and verse number 7. And then he communicated through silence. Why? Because when people are trying to shame you, the worst thing in the world you can do is try to talk them out of it. Sometimes the most powerful words you can speak are no words at all. And this is what Jesus was doing. And so what, he, what, what was he communicating? Number one, he was communicating, I'm not interested in your accusations. You see someone accused, I see someone broken. You see someone that, that you want to stone, I see someone 
that needs life because they've been dead for a long time. That's what Jesus was saying. So he wasn't interested in accusations. And Jesus communicated that he wasn't interested in arguing and debating. And he taught us many things. Number one, he taught us that sometimes the best thing to do is to just be quiet. To just call it background noise and ignore it. There was a period of time, I shared this in the first service, there was a, a period of time many years ago in a church that we were pastoring and we had a, uh, an associate pastor and we were getting ready to go to a different pastorate and they came to us and said that they felt like they were supposed to be the next pastors of the church. Well, the problem is, is in the organization that we're in, that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. And so um, I explained to them that that's not how it works, that if you wanted to pastor a church, uh, with, with the organization, with the Church of God organization, then what you need to do is you need to get licensed and credentialed and you need to get trained and it takes some time and then, and then uh, they'll present you eventually, hopefully, to a, a, a congregation and the congregation will have a preference vote and, and then you can come into that congregation and, and you can be there for the rest of your life as long as you, know, you don't have moral failures and things like that. Well, they didn't like that. They thought I should just turn it over to them. And they didn't understand. My hands were completely tied. Uh, I couldn't do anything about it if I wanted to. So they just decided that they were going to go on a character assassination campaign against our entire family. They said nasty things about us, horrible things about us. They accused us of things. They fabricated things. They accused us of things. It's not the first time it's happened. We've been in the ministry a long time. People do stuff like that all the time. And so they were doing that. And so I'm going to the Lord one day, you know, and I'm crying and I'm bellyaching a little bit and I'm saying, Lord, but Lord, you know, these people that we won to the Lord, some of them are listening to them. They went three blocks down the road, started a church, and on a daily basis, several times a day, they were contacting anyone who would listen from our church, trying to feed them full of venom and trying to pull them out of the church. I was fighting, Lord, don't let me get bitter. Lord, I know I can't help but get angry, but the Bible said to be angry and sin not, so Lord, help me not sin in the midst of this anger. Because to be honest with you, I just wanted to go punch him in the nose. Donna has this famous saying, all I need is five minutes and a baseball bat. You know, that's where that came from. And so she said, all I need is five minutes and a baseball bat. And the Lord spoke to me, and I said, Lord, how am I going to handle this? And the Lord spoke to me. He said, you're going to say nothing. You're going to instruct your children to say nothing, your family to say nothing, and your staff. No one is to say anything. You let me handle this. That is the hardest thing I had ever done in my life because I seen them reaching out to people that we had invested in. We had reached out to them. We had married them. We had buried their dead. We had dedicated their babies. We had baptized them in water. We'd seen the Holy Spirit come upon them as they began to experience His fullness in their lives. There were so many different things that had happened through that. And, and I'm just sitting here and I'm just watching all of this going on and the Lord is telling me, just be silent. My wife would say, how come you won't say anything? And my children would say, I wish you would just say something. I wish you would just let people know. Here's what I found out. If you feed it, it grows. If you're silent, they'll run out of things to say and then they're going to have to think about what they were doing. And when they run out of things to say and they start thinking about what they're doing, then other people are thinking about what in the world just happened here. So Jesus was teaching us that sometimes the loudest voice you have is that of no voice at all, to just be silent. 
So he was communicated that he wasn't interested in arguing and debating. He taught us sometimes that we just need to ignore accusers. He taught us that silence can be deafening. And he taught us to love even the broken. Now let me give you some scriptures for what I was sharing with you here. I want to read it to you out of the Amplified. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 23 through 24. Here's what the Bible says. But refuse, shut your mind against, have nothing to do with trifling, ill-informed, unedifying, stupid controversies over ignorant questionings for you know that they foster strife and breed quarrels. That's the Bible. Hello. That's not just Pastor Jonathan preaching this. That's the Bible. And then look at verse 24. The Bible said, And the servant of the Lord... Somebody say, that's me. Come on. And the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, fighting and contending. Instead, he must be kindly to everyone and mild-tempered, preserving the bond of peace. He must be a skilled and suitable teacher patient and forbearing and willing to suffer wrong. Now if you go on down to verse number 25, the Bible says that if you have to talk to someone who is contentious, then you need to do it in so many words with grace. So Jesus wasn't going to mix it up with these scribes and Pharisees. He realized it wasn't going to do any good because all they're looking for is a fight They're looking to entrap him and they're looking to stone her and mixing it up with them was going to do absolutely nothing but create confusion and chaos. So instead, with the finger of God, he legislated on the ground. Then, (laughs) Jesus lifted himself up, saw none but the woman, and he said unto her, Woman, where are Thine accusers. Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And he said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So what religion tried to put on her, Jesus lifted off of her. You can tell the difference between someone who has religion and someone who has a relationship. Because people that are steeped in religion are going to come along and they're going to offer you this list of things that you cannot do. Those that are in relationship are going to come to you and say, did you know that you can have an experience with God that will just boggle your mind? There's a difference between religion and relationship. Those of us that know Him, we're not religious. I'm not a religious person. I'm just a Christian who is in love with Jesus and I want to do everything that I can to please Him. 
and I want to do everything that I can to help other people fall in love with Him. I'm not standing up here and telling you if you give your life to Christ, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. I'm telling you if you give your life to Christ, you're going to experience a love that you didn't know existed. You're going to experience, you're going to experience unmerited favor and God's grace. Grace is God's ability to do in you and for you what you cannot do in yourselves or for yourselves. You may not be able to quit that addiction by yourself, but God can help you. You might not be able to come back from all of these things that you've been going through that you're feeling shame over, but God will forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll wash you. He'll make you clean. And you know what? After he does all of that, he'll call you his own. He'll say, you're mine. You are mine. Why does God love me? Because I'm his. Because you belong to God. That's why God loves you. He doesn't love you for what he can get out of you. He doesn't love you for, for what you can do for him. He loves you because you belong to him. Why do you love your kids? Because they're yours. No different with God. Now, let's talk a little bit about shame. Because that's what they were trying to put on her. Shame is a painful sensation excited by a consciousness of guilt or of having done something which injures reputation. The first biblical reference to shame is found right after creation when the Bible actually said in Genesis 2 and 25 that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Which teaches me and teaches you that God originally intended for us to live free of shame. I want you to look at your neighbor right now and tell them you were not created for shame. You were not created for shame. There are so many things that try to bring shame on us. Failed business, bankruptcy, moral failure, divorce, addictions, unrealistic expectations on ourselves to just name a few. There are so many things that the enemy will use to try to put shame on you. But I want you to know you were not created for shame. Well, what was I created for, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible tells us in Romans, not Romans, Psalms chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than, than the angels. And now here's what you were created for. And hast crowned him with glory and honor, Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That's what we're created for. To be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion. We were created by God to have dominion, to not be ashamed of ourselves. We were created to have dominion. Man was introduced to the emotions of shame after the fall. 
After the fall of Adam and Eve and down through the scripture, you find different places where, you know, sensing rejection from God, Cain kills Abel. Noah's nakedness and and drunkenness was exposed by Cain and his son and he cursed his own son with shame. Do you think the prodigal son had shame? Do you think that he experienced shame? The Bible said he came to himself. And he said, I will go home to my father. I like that song. You remember that song? There's a promise coming down the dusty road. You remember that song? I love that song. And I I can just see it all. There's a promise coming down that dusty road. I, I love it. He's going down the road there. And I can see his father with arms stretched open wide as that son throws himself into the arms of his heavenly father. The little brother comes along. He tells his daddy, he says, why are you throwing, why are you killing the fatted calf? Why are we eating? Why are we being merry? Why are you putting shoes on his feet and a ring on his hand? Why are you putting a robe on his back? I'm the one that stayed here with you. He's the one that shamed you. And and what did the father say? My son once was lost, but he's alive again. He was dead He was, and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. He's found. It just took away the shame. Now listen very closely because I'm going to give you just a few things here and then we're going to close. But I'm going to give you a few things here that I think is going to revolutionize your life when you think about shame. Everybody say this with me. Shame is Satan's bully. That's what shame is. Shame is Satan's bully. Satan will grind you into the ground if you let him. But the Bible said that you're under, that he's under your feet. That that you don't have to put up with that. Romans 10 and 11, the scripture says, No man who believes in him, who adheres to, relies on, and trusts in him will ever be put to shame or disappointed. Take that devil Psalms 34, 22, the Lord redeems the lives of His servants and none of those who take refuge and trust in Him shall be condemned or held guilty. Shame will influence your actions. It will influence your opinion toward other people. It will cause you to try and pull others down so you can feel better about your situation, thus clouding your reality. It will make you think that people are thinking things about you that's never crossed their mind. It'll get you to think about things about other people based on false realities. It's called shame. The Bible says in Revelation 12, 7 through 10 that Satan is referred to as a dragon, a serpent, and the accuser of the brethren who is constantly trying to destroy our reputation before God the Father. So when we realize where the shame is coming from, then we can say, you know what? That's under my feet. The cross removed my shame. I'm going to show you the part of Calvary where your shame was eradicated. Are you ready? Isaiah chapter 50 and verse number 6. I gave my back to the spiders, smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And I hid not my face from shame and spitting. He was wounded in his brow. 
with the crown of thorns to relieve us of oppression and depression and those things. Wounded in His hands, you've heard me say it many times, for the purification of our works. Wounded in His feet for the purification of our walk. He received 39 stripes on His back for our healing and was wounded in His side for the purification of our heart. But when they pulled His beard and He gave His face to the smiters, what He was doing was taking the penalty for our shame. Jesus paid the price. In the Middle East, when you slap someone across the face, that is one of the highest insults that you could ever do. It is degrading, even here, it is degrading, it is demoralizing, and Jesus gave His face to the smiters so you wouldn't have to feel shame. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. He conquered shame. But why carry it if He conquered it? How do I overcome it, Pastor? You start seeing yourself like God sees you. How does He see me? Saved and delivered and healed and set free. The Son of God. Those fancy theological words, redeemed, justified, sanctified, set apart for holy worship. How should I see myself? The same way that God sees me. That's how you need to see yourself. So here's a thought. My challenge to you today. Why not just let the past be the past? There are too many people today that are letting their history define their destiny. And we should never allow our history to define our destiny. What defines us is our vision. God's vision for us. So let it go. But you don't understand, Pastor. I've been involved in addictions. I've been involved in pornography. I've been involved in drugs. I've been involved in alcohol. I've been through bankruptcy. I've been through divorce. I've been through all of those things. You don't understand the pain. Listen, He bore it so you wouldn't have to. My challenge to you is to receive everything that Calvary paid for. Just say, Lord, I receive healing today from guilt. I receive healing from condemnation. I receive healing from shame. And make this commitment. I'm not going to let the devil beat me down anymore. I'm going to live in joy. I'm going to live in victory. I'm going to experience life. 
I'm going to have God's favor. I'm going to have God's blessing upon my life. And I'm not going to let the pain of my past stop me from experiencing the joy of my future. Hallelujah. Come on, let's stand to our feet today. Let's stand to our feet. When we try to pay the price or when we carry the shame, listen, this is a very strong statement. I want you to hear me well. When we try to carry that shame by ourselves, then what we're doing is we're cheapening what Jesus did on Calvary. Let me say this in strong terminology because I want you to hear me and I want you to to remember this. Don't you dare, ever, don't you dare let shame stop you from having the relationship that you need to have with God and cheapen the sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary. Do you realize what He went through for you? Thank you for joining us on Working the Word. For more information, go to our website at www.suncoast4, and that's the number four, Jesus.tv. You may also write us at 12637 Pony Lane, Hudson, Florida, 34669. Or you may call us at 727-856-1770. Our office hours are Monday through Wednesday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Thursdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And remember, the Word will work if you work the Word.